3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening this morning to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, Wednesday Breakfast listeners. This is Claudia from the Breakfast team welcoming you to our show this morning. And how is everyone today? It's the 10th of August. Well, it's been a bit of a sad time, I think, for Australians losing uh, Archie Roach just 10 days ago. And now um, we've lost two other beautiful Australian musical icons, Judith Durham from The Seekers and, uh, of course, the much-loved Olivia Newton-John. So we're going to be playing a little bit of a tribute to these three singers this morning. We'll be sharing some of their favourite songs and music and yeah, a little bit of reflection on what they've contributed to not just the Australian music scene but the Australian identity and uh, just a lovely entertainment that we've uh, enjoyed for so many years. This show this morning is going to be a bit of a mix. We're going to start off with some poetry. It's Poetry Month this uh, month in Australia. And we're going to start off with an interview with Evelyn Araluen, who is uh, our much awarded and loved First Nations poet. Uh, And then we're going to hear about ageism in the music industry, a very topical Uh, area, ageism, but we don't often hear about it in this particular sphere, so that will be uh, coming up after that. And then we're going to go to modern slavery with an interview with Professor Jeremy Moon uh, from the Copenhagen Business School talking about uh, supply chains and in particular the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh in 2013 where over a thousand garment workers were killed as a result of the building collapsing and he's going to talk about how the corporate uh, international corporate garment companies responded to that disaster and the whole idea of social corporate responsibility. So we're going to kick off first with Evelyn Araluen as she spoke to Carly from The Breakfast Show and let's hear what she had to say. Evelyn Araluen is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal. She has been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, and a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship. Evelyn was born and raised on Darug country, and she descends from the Bunjilung Nation. This morning, she joins 3CR Breakfast to speak about her new collection of poetry, Drop Bear. Welcome, Evelyn, and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. 
So your collection is titled Drop Bear and I personally really admire your subtle humour in your collection amidst uh, reckoning with really violent topics like imperialism and colonisation. And you have a poem in the anthology titled Drop Bear Poetics where you draw on fictional colonial characters like Blinky Bill and you beautifully weave in conceptions of Indigenous sovereignty against white settler nationalism. So I'm interested in what you, uh, drew you to Drop Bear for the title of your collection. Yeah, um, and thank you for those very beautiful comments. Um, so I'm not entirely sure about where exactly the language of like Drop Bear specifically entered all of my thinking about this project, but it was like really, really early along. The poem Drop Bear Poetics is, is one that I wrote a couple of years ago before I really thought about like a longer collection around these ideas. Um, and it just struck me the whole time that there is just this strange um, crypto-mythology around the ways in which settler colonial Australia approaches its own ideas of, like, haunting and ghostliness. And mm-hmm. so the drop there is this weird in-between idea of something that is simultaneously assumed to be native, even though we actually, like, there's no Aboriginal stories of drop bears or anything of the like, but is also so international in the way that we kind of use this idea of the drop bear, this joke of the drop bear, to terrorise tourists and and people who are, you know, overseas and hearing strange stories about terrifying Australia. So, I don't know, I just, I was drawn to the notion of something that is liminal and between and ultimately functions as a way of kind of terrorising people. Um, So that was a weird kind of avatar for me and for any kind of idea of haunting throughout the book. Mm, Which, yeah, you definitely draw on quite a lot um, in your collection. You clearly love birds. Um, your poems have dotted throughout them wattlebirds, currawongs, magpies, lyrebirds, kookaburras. Um, where does your love from of birds come from? So that is, like, thank you for asking me that question because that's a very attentive and lovely question to ask. Um, I, uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time around people who have incredibly special relationships with birds and, you know, when you're an Aboriginal person, you're always raised knowing that, like, birds have this very close communication and relationship with spirits and ancestors and you have like a very subtle respect for that um and you learn like different roles of birds but um yeah for me like I don't know I've just I've always loved the different ways in which there seem to be so many stories and personal feelings that people have about birds like some of the earliest dreaming stories I can remember being told were about like the lyrebird and about how you know, why some birds are black and why some birds got their colours. And, um, you know, throughout my life, I've just I've just met people, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, who have just had such deep and tender relationships with those, you know, with, with birds and different birds in specific. So I really enjoyed, I, I love writing about what other people love and, and my love of those people through those things. So that be, did become like a bit of a running scene throughout. But, um, yeah, I, I was I had no idea anybody picked that up. So thank you. That's very exciting to me. 
<laughs> yeah, actually, speaking of birds, my because I'm Wangi and Chinese, so my family come from the Gulf country. Um, oh, and yeah, just thinking about it, yeah, now my great great grandmother, her name is Minnie Maibuyonji, and so Maibuyonji means um, black red crested cockatoo. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're beautiful, they're such beautiful birds, and again, like, there's like really special and intimate relationships with ancestors and country and stuff, and like, particularly black cockatoos, they're just like haunting and gorgeous. And it's so interesting to see the way that, like, settler colonists were were also, like, struck by these amazing creatures too. So, like, going back into journals, I'm weirdly resentful that they have this love as well, but it's so fascinating to read that there's, like, over 200 years of that kind of, um, that kind of interest even from the settler colonists and from all of these different voices that you don't always expect to be paying attention to the land in any regard. They're just kind of there to use it. Mm, mm. Um, and in your collection, there's a real sense of reckoning with the present reality. Um, my favourite poem is Playing in the Pastoral. And I think there's this mantra and an ethos in Australia that pastoralists are farmers and that farmers in this country are always struggling and they're doing it tough and, you know, they're really benefiting the Australian citizen. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, like, how, through your poetry, do you try and grapple with the settler violence of pastoralism? Yeah, that's another thing that, um, you know, like, so much of this collection is propelled by an attempt to give nuance to things that I... Um, I either I love or I hate or I have like an incredibly problematic relationship with. So I do attempt to confront things no matter how complex they might be. So like I'm very open about the, you know, I, I, I live with my grandparents for a time on, on their farm and it, it's something that I have a really intimate kind of nostalgic memory for. But living there, like I knew how violent and awful pastoralism is for our landscape um you know like hooves in particular are just like so destructive for our soil and there's a really long history of that in the region that i grew up in the hawkesbury and the damage that the pastoral industry has done um so i try to acknowledge i do try to acknowledge that um pastoralism will never be um uh, will never be able to be involved in the decolonisation um, of mm. the Australian landscape, alongside recognising that it is sad to see an area that you know you've grown up with or that you have a lot of um, love for that connect, you have connections with, it is pretty sad to see it go from pastoralism to like suburbia, mm. knowing that they're both destructive forces, knowing that they're both you know really bad for the environment but that you you still mourn the loss of something that you've known and that you've loved. Um, so I just try to be honest about the... Um, I try to be honest about the fact that I do have personal feelings tangled up in really awful, harsh um, harsh ways of mistreating the landscape. And um, I think that's important. Like, I think we do have to be vulnerable about the different ways in which, you know, we are implicit in different problematics. Mm. 
Um, and now to another aspect of your collection. A number of the poems take on academic or institutional conventions, for example, Appendix Australia, Australis or Acknowledgement of Country, um, which is spelled C-U-N-T-E-R-Y. Um, and they're really different examples, but what does adopting this type of language allow you to do? Uh, so I did, I did use a bit of conceptual and academic language throughout the collection quite intentionally, um, but then also in moments it crept in because I've, you know, I've been doing a PhD for forever and mm. like I'm also a researcher and a teacher and um, I'm always just so struck about, struck on the ways that academic language is used to kind of legitimate or delegitimize knowledge. And I definitely had like this really petulant feeling throughout the book um, that I could say what I wanted to say poetically. I could say it honestly and from the heart and I could say it informed by storytelling, by elders, by culture, and they still wouldn't listen. And so a big part of um, my attempt to kind of use some of that language and those structures was to kind of ironise and undermine their validity and demonstrate that... Um, they aren't the authority. That's not the authoritative way to convey mm. information. Um, it's just the way that we are accustomed to um, structuring different arguments that are ultimately usually there to kind of speak over other people who don't have access to those systems and structures. So really badly misusing them throughout the collection is my subtle attempt to <laughs> undermine those things and hopefully get revenge for myself. <laughs> Before we try to do a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Evelyn, I was wondering if you would like to share a poem on air for listeners. Yeah. Um, well, I might. I might read Drop Air Poetics just because it was the first one you mentioned, and I think it's probably it probably summarizes the collection best. So um, yeah. So this one is Drop Air Poetics. Tidalic say I'm such great thirst. I will drain the land and drag my big fat belly across the empty sea. Bunyip say, I'm going to gobble you up if you step borders where I sleep and with wet claws I will snatch your spine and ankles to fill them with stain and stench. What the mopokes say don't need saying if you've grown up under his eyes. Now here's the part you write black snake down for a dilly of national flair. True God, you don't know how wild I'm going to be to every fucking postmod blinky bill trying to crack open my country, mining in metaphors that place you felt felt you, somewhere in the Royal National. Wagon says he's heart, but I am rage and dreaming at the gloss green palm fronds of this gentry set antique. All this pot planting and our sovereignty, a garden for you to swallow speak our blood. If you're talking that talk, you've got to scrape it from my schoolhouse walls, filter gollywog ashtray, snuggle pot kitchen to your pastoral deconstruct, fill four and twenty pies with artisan magpies. If you sever their heads, you can wear them to the doof. I say rage and dreaming, for making liar the liar bird, for making my medic the power by army gaze when ribbons mischief swallowed first life. Ochre dust, Creation breath, ancestor song. We aren't here to hear you poem. You do wrong, you get wrong. You get gobbled up. Thank you so much for sharing that, Evelyn. 
Thank you so much for having me on. So it's lovely to talk to the collect about the collection. <laughs> read it and thought things about. It. <laughs> and how can listeners um, get a copy of Drop Bear? Uh, so Drop Bears, I think, for sale in pretty much all bookshops at the moment around Melbourne. Um, but I would really encourage people to shop locally at their independent booksellers because that's they've all taken a hit throughout COVID. Um, so if you even if you can't get a copy through them uh, specifically, maybe ask if they'd like to order or if they have a website, order through that. And failing that, um, Booktopia uh, is a really good um, bookseller, online bookseller that supports independent sellers and supports the Australian publishing industry. Fantastic. And also, how can listeners um, stay up to date with your work? Uh, well, really the most the best thing to do is to just follow me on Twitter or check out my Twitter account, which is at Evelyn Aralewin. But fair warning, I do occasionally, you know, get a, I go on some rants at like 3 <laughs> about once a month. So just mute me on that occasion and, and then check me out for anything else at the time. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Evelyn, for joining us this morning on 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Really lovely. Evelyn Araluen, who is a poet, researcher and co-editor of the Overland Literary Journal, and she joined us on 3CR to speak about her debut collection of poetry, Drop Bear. What a fantastic interview uh, that was with Evelyn Araluen. And of course, August is Poetry Month, and there are a lot of activities and uh, programs that anyone who is interested in poetry, or even curious to find out about poetry can participate in for Poetry Month. And uh, I also was listening to uh, Evelyn talking about the importance of birds and uh, particularly the black cockatoo in First Nations uh, culture and spiritual connection. And sadly, this week, the black cockatoo has been uh, added to the endangered species list. And I know that is an important totem for the Gunditjmara people in south uh, western Victoria. So very sad news there and uh, it joins the koala and a number of other endangered species. So yeah, disappointing. But we're now going to go to another topic altogether. We're going to be talking about ageism in the music industry. And uh, let's hear what Rose has to say here. She's uh, speaking about ageism and the Australian music industry. Uh, so today I'm chatting with you about age and our industry, a conversation which has been sparked because of a tweet that was sent out by another radio station, actually, um, that is a mainstream radio station, uh, essentially asking artists if, they, if it hurt when they aged out of the youth radio station. Uh, and it's referring to the concept that or to the practice, I suppose, of having an age limit for certain artists uh, regarding when, you know, when they should be played or when they should be shoved off to a different station. Um, the issue with this is that the particular, the radio station in question does have a reasonably high amount of power in our industry here um, and a very high amount of exposure to a wide listenership. Uh, and so being played on them is actually quite import- an important step in lots of people's um, careers in, if the career that they're looking for is, um, you know, does require a lot of people to hear their music. Um, 
you know, there's such a huge amount of focus on age amongst popular culture that sometimes it really does feel very much like you can't escape from some of the more negative connotations that are put forward, you know, regarding aging. And when we think about that term, you know, ageism as a term, it broadly means a prejudice or discrimination towards a person or group uh, of persons based either solely or, or partly due to their age. And so the World Health Organization actually talks about the erosion of solidarity between the generations. I was looking up on their website when I was doing a bit of research for this for this topic. And yeah, I found that, that particular sentence very... Um, you know, it sort of caught me. I was like, oh, the erosion of solidarity between the generations. And, you know, I agree with this to to some extent um, because at the same time, I do think that there is a very important purpose to having some generational, not clash, but change and growth and debate and challenges between the generations because honestly, yeah, you can't you can't have that that change and growth without that, you know, debate and without some challenges going between Um And that's how we have ideology changes, you know, within our society. Um, But I do think that the cultural influence, particularly from within, from a Western lens, certainly pushes a lot of thought and understanding um, of the aging process towards something that, you know, something that should be avoided, something that should be escaped from at all costs, even though it is very, very much inevitable that we all age. The other thing that is um, troubling about this is that it has a lot of intersection with things like sexism and misogyny and, of course, uh, race as well. And you can see that with in the incredible work that an artist called Guthrie put together. So in response to the tweet, Guthrie, who I've spoken about earlier on the program, put together essentially a... uh, a bunch of statistics and data that they pulled by looking at the age of a lot of the artists that were being played uh, and then looking at them based on that gender and then building a bit of an, an, an average uh, of, of where that was all coming from. And so when we looked at the actual statistics that, that uh, Guthrie released, they were really, really telling that there is a gap not only in age, but also in gender, in the amount that this particular station is playing and also within the presenters as well, which was quite troubling too. So for example, uh, and this came with a disclaimer as well, that a lot of the identity information that was gathered by Guthrie was based um, on, you know, a little Google search and doesn't take into account people's to, you know, gender identity or particular backgrounds and uh, everything was just based off information that was was at the forefront so able to just be pulled um, so for example at the time that this tweet was released um, the top 50 most played songs in the week they posted the average age for women artists was about 25 and a half and the average age for um, cis men artists was 29 and a quarter which is like that's quite a big gap for culturally and linguistically diverse and First Nations Australian artists, it was 25 and a half as well. The same for cisgender women. Uh, and the average age of all other artists was about 27.6. So there was a very clear sort of averaging of definitely under 30 and sitting within that. What's interesting as we move forward through Guthrie's findings uh, here uh, was that the number of women artists and bands was about 21, but the number of male bands, uh, artists and bands was about 28. And there was the number of women, uh, one of, sorry, the number of bands with two or more women was only one. And whereas the, the amount of, um, 
bands with two or more men was 17. So, and 14 of these were all men. So it has a very large sort of push towards all, all male bands um, was found in this. Um, but the, the thing that really caught me as well was the fact that the presenters, so there is an average age for women presenters on this show, which was about 28. And the average age for male presenters on the show was about 38 and a half, which is about a 10 year age gap which is just nuts when you think about, you know, the importance of having a, a lot of different voices and experiences coming into the show and having that uh, at the forefront. So when we're thinking about, obviously, the statistics that are coming up here, um, it is quite distressing, I think, to think about, to think that there is a very real cutoff point. And what Guthrie was pulling on, even though, you know, yes, there is so much more data that could be pulled from within that station and the the, um, the data that Guthrie gathered was based on a, you know, short amount of time. However, I think if it was to go further, um, I think that they would continue to find very similar trajectories as well if they continued forward. But it is so concerning to think that what Guthrie has exposed within those statistics is that it is very much real that there is an aging out process and as an artist myself I find that incredibly disheartening and whilst there are a lot of different pathways for musicians it was just an absolute blow to the back of the head really to have you know our industry completely strangle held by you know this this coronavirus and everything that was going on and then to be told actually even if, you know, even though we're losing two years of our lives right now, um, you know, losing in inverted commas, but there's also a cutoff point for age that after a certain amount of time, um, you know, we're not going to play you anymore and we won't give you any time of day. And it is just, you know, that is so disheartening for a lot of musicians and people that I've spoken to as well. And it also completely devalues the voices of diversity, the voices of people from within communities such as the queer community, such as the BIPOC community, such as, you know, people who are non-binary. And it's just, it is just bizarre that that you know, it is being um, sort of also heralded as well, very, very forwardly. There is a lot more to say on this particular issue, and it's something that, you know, really can't be completely placed into one setting, into one sitting, um, you know, and into one radio show. I think that, you know, you could create an entire thesis on this particular point. And I think, uh, you know, maybe I should, maybe someone should. (laughs) Um, But it is interesting to start this conversation and to build on it. And what Guthrie's done by, you know, going out of their way to um, pull out statistics and actually look at them and say, well, okay, you've made this statement and now I'm going to go and find out if what you're saying is actually has some, some basis and grounds upon it. Is they're opening that door even further and they're saying, we need to talk about this. What's interesting is they haven't really seen any kind of return Uh, commentary back from this station regarding um, this issue and it would be really great to see them come back and have yeah an open conversation about exactly what's happening and you know why it is that they have an aging out process you know I would love to see it that okay it's a youth radio station that means that the presenters are youth okay fair enough but let's not put an age limit on the music that you play let's keep that open and diverse because really if music moves you if music moves you regardless of the age of that the artist 
is that not enough that it that it has you know value in being played why is it that there has to be an age that is the cutoff point of value you know it's just very disheartening and that was rose from satellite skies talking about aging in the music industry satellite skies is every monday at 11 p.m so if you enjoyed that conversation, you can tune in every Monday and uh, hear more from the team there. We're going to go to a track now. Archie Roach, A Child Was Born Here, from the Butterboy album. Be careful when you walk through these lands Because a child was born here And a child was born there Oh, 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 yes Oh, 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 yes Stains of the blood and the water that come from the mothers for their sons and their daughters and their daughters. Baby girl rubbed in the ashes by the billabong where she was born. So that she will return. Whoa, 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 yeah. Softly in a garden, the children scream like a madman and go rushing in. No, I remember all the mothers that lay and went through the suffering when new life begins.
careful when you walk through this land Because a child was born here And a child was born there Yes Oh, 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 oh Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. Ooh, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Can you feel it? That was Archie Roach with A Child Was Born Here. What a tender, beautiful song. Brings a tear to my eye listening to uh, Dear Archie. We're going to take a turn now uh, to talk about something different. We're going to be talking about modern slavery in the garment industry. In May this year, just after the ninth anniversary of the Rana Plaza garment factory disaster in Bangladesh, a group of distinguished world scholars gathered in Melbourne to discuss current issues in business ethics. The Gourlay Ethics in Business Week, hosted by the University of Melbourne's Trinity College, focused on corporate ethics in four key spheres, the digital space, the coal industry, modern slavery and health. The paramount aim was to encourage integrity and social responsibility in the business practices of Australian corporations. Speaking on the Modern Slavery panel was the Director of the Sustainability Centre and Professor of Sustainability Governance at the Copenhagen Business School, Jeremy Moon. Professor Moon is a specialist in social sustainability in global supply chains and the role of corporations in governance. I managed to catch up with him during that week to ask about his work. And in particular, I was keen to find out how international fashion companies on selling garments made at the Rana Plaza factories responded to the disaster in which over a thousand garment workers died. Welcome, Professor Mood, and thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Breakfast. Can you start off by sharing a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be involved in the work you've been doing, examining the initiatives uh, in response to the Rana Plaza disaster? Yes, I've spent a long time doing research looking at corporate social responsibility in uh, Australia, Britain and all around the world, in fact. And following the Rana Plaza disaster, in which over a thousand Bangladesh workers got killed, I applied and was successful to get a research grant to look at 
corporate uh, responsibility in this very difficult context of unsafe work conditions, poverty, poor rights in Bangladesh. And thinking then back to my main theme, so what are Western corporations responsible for in this context? So your focus was on the response and responsibility of corporations that were outside Bangladesh and presumably were in the supply chain. So purchasing garments that were made in Bangladesh. Precisely. 70 or 80% of the Bangladesh export industry is in the form of garments sold to America and, and Europe principally. So the question comes up, If corporations are responsible for the way products are made and how people are employed in their supply chains, how does this extend to other countries, countries where they have no um, relationship as employers for these workers? They instead source from Bangladesh companies who themselves employ the workers. So the question, as I to repeat, comes up, so what's the corporate social responsibility? of these companies. They could easily say, we don't employ these workers. And to be fair to the companies, sometimes they don't really even know who the workers are or where some of the t-shirts or jeans are made. They might have a first tier supplier in Bangladesh who actually outsources some of their production to yet another Bangladesh company. So uh, when the disaster happened, it wasn't just that a lot of corporations Uh, simply denied responsibility. No, we don't source from those factories that collapsed. Some of them possibly actually didn't know because of the complexities of their supply chains. Well, we'll um, unravel that a little bit more. Can you first explain when you talk about the complexity of the supply chain, how many tiers would be in a typical supply chain? For example, a t-shirt that someone in America or Australia buys. Well, you're asking now an even more challenging question because, of course, Strictly speaking, we could go back to the growing the cotton in the fields and the use of water in the fields and the shocking working conditions that some have, the danger that workers have who who, uh, wash the uh, impurities with with assets of various sort, the local pollution. This could even happen in India or China, not uh, not in Bangladesh. And some companies are even trying to take responsibility for this in the Better Cotton Initiative. But my focus actually is simply looking at the manufacturing side and and, and I'm afraid leaving out a huge number of very important areas. Well, a corporation, say, from Denmark that was buying from um, Bangladesh may employ buyers who aren't even their own staff. Some companies will use their own staff. Others will use buyers who work on their behalf. And then, as I say, they would buy from a Bangladesh firm, but the Bangladesh firm might might uh, itself contract out to one or two le- lo- lower levels. These days, it's probably not more than that. Historically, this might have even been into uh, people's homes, so that actually the, some of the production could take place by uh, women or children work- working in a home, which itself is obviously difficult for anybody to regulate uh, for, on ethical as well as practical grounds. So, and also the other point to make is these factories, a small factory could be producing clothes for 10 or 20 different multinationals. And so to say that a particular company is responsible for a a particular brand is responsible for the conditions in in a particular Bangladesh factory is not appropriate because that factory could be supplying various 
companies who would see themselves as competitors in America or Denmark or Australia. So coming back to the time of the disaster, what happened to bring these international players to the table and to form some type of alliance? Well, as is often the case with corporate responsibility, it's the social social media and the NGO sector that prompts responses. A number of companies were in denial about having anything to do with Rana Plaza, but then there there were photographs and films of their their company labels in the debris of of the building. And so gradually there became an awareness that a great deal of very well-known companies were responsible. I should say then, in time, groups of these, first of all in Europe, said, well, we need to do something about this, what should we do? And also in America. And then we had two different bundles, if you like, of responses uh, that, that came specifically on worker safety. A European one we'll call the Accord, and an American one we'll call the Alliance. And this is a very interesting in itself, because it shows that re- conceptions of business responsibility vary according to the country you come from. And of course, the Europeans had a much more trade, u- much more trade union involvement, and they built in greater legal obligations into their, their, uh, their manifesto and their organisation. And the alliance, fewer legal obligations and no trade union involvement. But in both cases, these initiatives were designed to ensure that Bangladesh law was upheld. And that's rather clever because they couldn't be accused of introducing foreign laws or foreign standards. It was Bangladesh laws that they ensured were upheld in the factory remediation. I, I, of course, there are a lot of other initiatives, which some of which we can come to in a minute. But these, I think, were vital because they addressed the core problem of building safety. They reflected American and the British appro- uh, European approaches, but they tried to uphold Bangladesh law, not some external standard. Where are we now? Nine years since Rana Plaza, the overall impact of these initiatives and of some government responses in Bangladesh, uh, the number of deaths and injuries has gone down in the sector. Quite substantially. Quite substantially, yeah. Very important point um, that these initiatives are simply to reflect the supply chains of the concerned European and American companies. They have had an effect, I think, of of leading to the closure of uh, factories which weren't able to live up to the the standards. So there's actually been some shrinkage in the number of factories and, and the growth of the larger ones and some smaller ones that weren't able to live up to it. Have, uh, have dropped off. But you're right, there's still a lot of production uh, for other international markets or indeed for domestic markets, which sit outside this. So in terms of the international companies trying to make the Bangladesh law more effective, what were the steps that they took to do that? Well, the, the steps would have involved <laughs> fire doors that worked um, and uh, it's, we, we, we've some of my researchers found instances of, of, of fire doors which were actually always locked, so people couldn't have got out of the buildings if they wanted to. Um, alarm systems in place, um, certifications of building the fabric of the building being secure, uh, and I think a regular system for inspection of those things. I'm not quite sure what the regularity pattern is, but these were the, effectively these were audits conducted now on a regular basis by building safety experts. 
At the same time, I should also add that the Bangladesh government has increased its investment in inspectors. And of course, they also do operate rather more widely than the ones we're talking about. But the investment in the European and American initiatives was very great. And the coverage, as you say, went, went to hundreds of factories. So for those ones that were remediated, their business was more secure, their workers were safer. And what proportion of garment factories participated in those programs? I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not able to to say. I think I'm, I'm guessing overall, maybe twenty or thirty percent of the factories in the in the whole country. But I'm sorry, I'm not absolutely certain on that. Not clear to know how many factories there are, to be honest, outside the international supply chains. Obviously, if you're not in the supply chain of a company that's a member of these initiatives. You, you wouldn't be asked and you wouldn't, it wouldn't arise unless you wanted to upgrade yourself and maybe use Bangladesh government support. But I will say there are, uh, I imagine, American and European companies which haven't joined these initiatives. I mean, in, in many ways, there are other initiatives which involve, which involve companies um, or involve more companies. We can come to one of these in a minute, if you like, one around builder, uh, worker voice which from an American point of view is seen as a successor of the alliance. The accord still staggers on. It has some conflicts with some of the Bangladesh companies who argue that these are inappropriate powers that European companies are using. And there's been some court cases. But there is a a succession of the the accord. Yes, let's talk now about the bottom-up approaches. What are some of these approaches that work to increase workers' capacity to voice their rights? Yeah, I should say, actually, in my study, um, we found over 100 initiatives uh, ranging from pure builder safety, uh, building safety, through worker rights, through skill developments, through industry development. So there's a whole a lot, a lot focused is also on gender empowerment, because a lot of these workers are women, about 70 or 80 percent of the workforce. But yes, I think some of these other next interesting ones are labour rights, because if those workers back at Rana Plaza could have insisted that they had a right to leave the factory because the factory was dangerous, we wouldn't have had the disaster. So that's why a lot of people, I think, rightly focus on labour rights. And again, we get contrast between American and European approaches because they have different conceptions of worker rights. And the contrast is rather interesting. So in our study, we contrasted an, an American-sourced helpline uh, with uh, a more European institutionalization of, of represent, worker representation. And to see whether, uh, so the idea in both cases was to make workers more powerful. So again, we found these very interesting. Let's look first at the American approach, which has in many ways been the much more successful of the two. Uh, this is sim- very simple. The solution is simply to enable workers to telephone a helpline. The helpline then records the help that's being sought, whether it's for building safety, whether it's abuse of workers, um, or, or whether it's around uh, gender, um, gender issues in the workplace. And they will report these issues, not only to the factory managers, but also to the American companies who are members of this initiative. And of course, that's, that's a, a form of regulation. And it means that the workers are empowered. And we've done analysis of the, of the phone calls. There are thousands of calls that have been made, very widely taken up. 
And as far as our, our analysis suggests, I think it's because the, the American brands are made aware of what's happening and have an interest in a, at, at a factory level is this issue being dealt with. We, we, we believe that this is quite an effective mechanism. Of course, it's very cheap. It has very low bureaucratic costs. Actually, an American philanthropist has given a huge donation to it because they were so impressed. So apart from some of the, uh, the basic running costs, all, all the bills have been paid anyway. And this initiative, going back to a question you asked me earlier, this is spreading through the industry because a lot of factories are thinking this is a good idea in itself, even if we don't have the American brand looking over our shoulder at, at the result. Of course, there are certain weaknesses here. You could say from a European perspective, hang on a minute, these workers still aren't represented. They aren't able to have dialogue on a continuing and uniform basis with the company management. And that's precisely the sort of solution that a European initiative, mainly Scandinavia, UK and the Netherlands, built a social dialogue initiative. That's the idea that this one's built around. And of course, it reflects entirely the business models that those Scandinavian, British and Dutch companies are used to. A model whereby workers are represented, usually by trade union leaders. So in this case, actually, it didn't require trade unions because they have a delicate existence anyway. But nonetheless, the focus was workers having representatives who meet on a regular basis to bring their concerns to management. And again, there was a regulation in the, in the form of the European companies who are members looking over the shoulder of the Bangladesh factories to ensure that the represent representation was being uh, carried out. And also there was a big training, uh, investment in training of workers and managers in how to conduct their affairs and their deliberations together. But I will, and to that extent, it's been successful. The problem is it, it's entirely restricted to those supply chains reflecting those European uh, member companies. Whereas if you recall in that helpline example, there's a sort of, it's gone through uh, the industry like wildfire. This is being taken up left, right and centre. And actually it's had a huge social benefit because it's become a form of an emergency system for wider issues in the community, not just um, for worker issues. And that's generally seen as, as beneficial. If there's a fire in the village or the, in, the, in the district rather, um, the, the helpline has been used. So it's, it's had a lot of, a lot of uh, benefits. So it sounds like there's been a proactive movement on the ground in Bangladesh, picking up on some of these initiatives and really thinking about how they can build capacity and avert disasters and, and problems in a whole range of areas. Yeah, yeah. well, there has been. And as I said, 100 initiatives since the period 2013 to 2020, billions of dollars spent and a lot of good, good engagement. I think some of the best engagement is where international efforts, be they public or private, because often this work reflects international agencies, not just corporations, working with Bangladesh actors, be they social enterprises, uh, companies, uh, and ideally more trade unions, but at the moment they still have a rather delicate status in Bangladesh. And I th my, my feeling is that really effective combinations of Bangladesh uh, capacity and legitimacy along with the uh, international legitimacies, it, it, it is vital because quite often from the, from the global north point of view, uh, the interest is in a, a model that looks good from the outside. 
But in the Bangladesh case, very much more interested, of course, in how effective these are, what difference are they making? And getting, getting these combinations right is, is still a challenge, but there's been a lot of good progress. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, 8.55am on the dial, and we've been hearing a conversation with Professor Jeremy Moon from the Copenhagen Business School about corporate social responsibility in global supply chains, in particular the international corporate response to the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factories in Bangladesh in 2013. We're going to take a short break now and when we return we're going to hear about the initiatives addressing gender imbalance among garment workers and Australia's response to modern slavery in the garment industry. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Ross House is a five-storey heritage-listed community building situated in the heart of Melbourne at 247 to 251 Flinders Lane, just up from DeGrave Street and next to the City Library and CAE. Ross House is the only community-owned and managed building in Australia, home to many of Melbourne's charities and not-for-profit groups. Ross House has been a pioneer in the social and environmental movements since 1987. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR. Radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. And welcome back to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm your host, Claudia. And a big welcome if you've just joined us this morning, Wednesday the 10th of August. We've been listening to a conversation with Professor Jeremy Moon this morning. He's the Director of the Copenhagen Business School's Sustainability Centre and Professor of Sustainability Governance. He was a visiting professor at the Gourlay Ethics in Business Week, hosted by the University of Melbourne's Trinity College earlier this year. And he's been speaking to us about corporate social responsibility in relation to modern slavery, in particular the international corporate response to the collapse of the Rana Plaza garment factories in Bangladesh in 2013. Among the many initiatives established to address safety and worker rights were programs targeting gender issues among garment workers, 70% of whom are women. In my study, um, we found over 100 initiatives uh, ranging from pure uh, building safety through worker rights, through skill developments, through a, lot, a lot focused is also on gender empowerment. 
because a lot of these workers are women, about 70 or 80 percent of the workforce. Certainly, there's been a lot of attention to um, issues of representation and voice at the workplace, but also, I'm I'm afraid, attention to uh, violence and and bullying, harassment, which I'm afraid are very serious issues. Uh, And uh, so so they tended to uh, address particular problems, to have reporting systems to address violence, harassment in the workplace, but also others to address um, skill development, both in the technical skills of, of manufacture of clothes. Um, there was a bit of a paradox as, as the industry actually reflected higher skill levels in the last five years or so, more men came back into the workforce. And it was almost as if women got pushed out because men came in because they thought they wanted to get the higher income jobs reflecting the higher skills. So some of the initiatives are designed to make women precisely able to raise their skill level. And yet other um, um, schemes have been used to try and uh, encourage the management capacities of women to bring more women into management positions. That's been a bit of a challenge, I'm afraid, reflecting reticence on the part of women, perhaps, as well as resistance uh, among other managers. But that's it's quite a range. And again, a lot a lot of. Good, good organisations are, are involved from civil society uh, and the companies and the training world. Uh, so, yeah, pr- pr- progress there as well. Now, you just spent a week in Australia, and I know you've had uh, some very long stints living and uh, working in Australia in the past. Do you have any comments about the landscape here in terms of what's happening in our garment industry and our uh uh, our role as both consumers and buyers um, of garments made elsewhere. Yeah, well, that, that's always a tricky one to come into a country for a week. You know, I, live, I lived here many year, for many years before to, uh, to, to, to make a judgment. I, I do note that um, Australian companies don't seem to have initiatives on the, of, of the sort that I've described, like the Accord or the Alliance. To my knowledge now of course that could be because the markets are quite small the number of corporations is quite small whether they were invited to join the accord or the alliance i don't know as i recall there are no australian mem- members of them certainly also uh, in a number of countries which i've studied denmark norway sweden the united kingdom there are things called ethical trade initiatives where companies work together with civil societies in those respective countries to develop principles for responsible sourcing and also what what the members be they companies or the civil society tell me is that they really they learn from these interactions so there's there were coalitions they develop principles and they learn together oh, if there's been a, what actually some of the push for the responses to the bangladesh crisis were from these ethical trading initiatives who were then contributed to the formation of the accord and the alliance that I've described. So there are those sorts of initiatives which may be uh, appropriate for Australian companies. But as I said, I do recognise the relatively small size of the corporate sectors. Uh, maybe in- engaging with the already existing ones may help. Another point that um, one might point, what one might note, is that some governments themselves have um, a procurement criteria which extend to responsible supply chains. So that would that that, that uh, again would be the case in in the United Kingdom concerning environmental uh, product uh, environmental quality of products. That's, this is a way in which governments say, look, we will only buy products 
which meet a certain standard. And sometimes these governments even refer to the standards of the sort that we've been talking about this morning, developed by business and civil society themselves. So Norway and Singapore, as I recall, those governments have both established standards based actually on these these very uh, principles. We do have legislation requiring Australian companies to report on their actions and the work they're doing in modern slavery supply chains, which is very similar to what you're talking about. There are two separate things, really, the due diligence to require that companies check that there is no modern slavery, uh, corruption, uh, or or whatever in supply chains, as well as a requirement to publicly report uh, on on the supply in this case, the supply chains from Bangladesh. People often say, well, these reports are just greenwash and whitewash and all sorts of wash. And at one level, that that may be true, but I think companies don't like being accused of hypocrisy. And social uh, media and NGOs are very good now at looking for hypocrisy. And some of the most prominent companies can get called out for having made claims. And in some of the European countries, the greater there's greater tightening of uh, social reporting so that governments stipulate a little bit more about what should be in a report and what, what reported on. And of course, some of the companies are outstanding in their reporting and are really informing future government regulation, I hope. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you uh, to the Australians who I've been able to speak to and learn from in the last week. It's been an instructive week for me too. And that was Professor Jeremy Moon talking about corporate responsibility in the garment manufacturing industry and particularly the responses of Western corporations to the Bangladeshi Rana Plaza factory collapse nine years ago. Professor Moon was part of an international research team investigating initiatives in the Bangladeshi garment sector to improve social sustainability in supply chains. And I'll put the uh, link to the report that uh, he contributed to up on our show notes. And just a note that Australia does have a voluntary code of practice for garment manufacturing. Uh, It's at ethicalclothingaustralia.org.au forward slash code dash of dash practice forward slash And to hear more from the Gourlay Ethics in Business Week panel discussions and talks, you can go to www.trinity-college.shorthandstories.com forward slash 2022-gourlay-g-o-u-r-l-a-y-business-in-ethics-week forward slash. I'm Claudia, your host this morning on 3CR Breakfast. We're going to have a little music medley now, uh, a little celebration and tribute to uh, Australia's Olivia Newton-John and Judith Durham, who passed sadly this week. We're going to hit that one off with Let Me Be There, Olivia Newton-John.
and that was Someday Soon by Ian and Sylvia. And before that track, we heard Let Me Be There by Olivia Newton-John. We're going to hear a couple of songs by The Seekers now, A World of Our Own and Blowing in the Wind. And I'd like to dedicate these to the Morrison family in Western Australia who I grew up with and uh, I can remember playing and listening to The Seekers with them. And also I'd like to do a shout out to my mum this morning if she's listening. She had a hip operation in hospital yesterday, so I know she's recovering. She's a regular listener to our program. So if you're listening, mum, uh, in hospital, hope you're doing okay and uh, hope you enjoy these songs from The Seekers. my friend. 
the seekers with blowing in the wind and before that we heard a world of our own by the seekers we're going to go now to a different topic again positive parenting we're going to be listening to an interview with susan arthur and heather smith and they're going to be talking about positive powerful parents which is a support group set up by parents with intellectual disabilities to keep their children. Positive, powerful parents want the Victorian government to commit to ending the discrimination of parents with intellectual disability. And this conversation came to us by the team at Raising Our Voices, which is one of uh, 3CR's longest-running radio shows and perhaps the longest-running radio show made by and for people with intellectual disability. And you can tune into Raising Our Voices tonight for a very special episode at 6pm because it's their 35th anniversary show. So that's a very uh, special event for the Raising Our Voices team. And now we're going to hear the conversation about positive parenting for people with intellectual disabilities. Raising Our Voices is a radio show run by people with a disability about people with disability. Nothing about us without us. On 3CR 8.55am, 3CR Digital and streaming at Heather and I, who are members of Positive Powerful Parents, also known as CPP, are going to talk about Positive Powerful Parents. So Positive Powerful Parents was started by me because I didn't realise how many people with an intellectual disability had faced similar issues as I with removal of their children. So that's why we started because, yeah, I just didn't realise how many other parents there were. Positive Powerful Parents is run for and by 
people with an intellectual disability and who have had involvement with child protection. And Positive Powerful Parents is a safe group because whatever is said in the room stays in the room and everyone understands your story because they've been through it as well. And we have a lot of social events as well, so you're not so lonely. Australia has signed and ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disability. And under Article 23, it states that the country must provide support to parents with a disability and must not take our children because of the disability of the child or the parent. Down the bottom it says that the child needs a paramount and I think that's how child protection gets around this. But what I guess positive, powerful parents would like to know is, uh, other people to know is that there isn't any programs out there for people with disabilities. So often that's how they lose their children. So in our opinion, the country and the government is not adhering to what they've signed and ratified. From my lived experience throughout my life, I don't think the UN Convention on the Rights of People with a Disability has changed much because of the way that I've been treated throughout my life. Make sure every child protection worker and parent in hospital and all the medical staff at the hospital get training and just to make it easier on the parents and the child and the whole family because it's very hard losing a child and it causes family conflict. Uh, Just if you are a parent with intellectual disability and you don't know about us, I'll be mentioning in a minute how you can find us and please come and join us. We're not about telling other people your story or WN to child protection, that's not what we're about. We're mainly about trying to fight this issue and support one another. So if you are a parent with ID and don't already know about us, please get in contact with us and join the group. We would be happy to see you. Check our website and Facebook page if you're a parent with intellectual disability. Even if you're not a parent, you can still check our stuff. Uh, We've got two Facebook pages, one purple, which is for parents only, and one red for whoever 
is interested in like Southern. So if you don't have an intellectual disability, you can still join the red page. And our website as well, you can still check our website. Uh, our website is www.positivepowerfulparents.com.au and our Facebook page is www.facebook.com forward slash positive powerful parents. Heather and Sue, what changes would you like to see for positive powerful parents? Uh, Sue talking here, I think the main change I would like to see is for parents to stop losing their children and to keep the their own children in their care with the support they need rather than losing their children. Have you ever been criticised in public um, about being a parent with a disability? No, I haven't, but I guess that's because I don't have my child. With me, the closest I would have got is when my child was young and back when I was living in Croydon, she wanted to go on one of them rides that you see at supermarkets and I had just moved so I didn't have much money but I had a little bit of money for some fruit for her. So I said no and the child protection worker overruled my decision and decided to pay for the ride for her. So I felt a bit humiliated because they only went to stop my decision if I was um, might be hurting her or something, and I don't see how not letting her have a ride was going to hurt her. Um. Heather? Um. I've been criticised within the family. I don't want to say too much because it's on a radio show. That's fair enough. With respect to privacy. How did powerful parents cope with lockdown? Oh, we were very lucky. We still operated via Zoom and... Yeah, we managed to stay afloat, although towards the end we realised it was getting hard because we had we have two groups, one in Morwell and one in Melbourne, and we had a number of people from both groups who either didn't have the resources, that, but we did offer them the resources. So I think it was more to the point they didn't trust the resources or didn't trust that the, what their story wouldn't get out there if they were on the internet. So they said they would only come to face-to-face -face meetings and it was getting really challenging apart from the core group that we've already got to get members to come because they just didn't trust, I think, programs like Zoom and Facebook and I guess when you've been a person with a disability and had bad things happen to you, 
one after another. I can understand why they might not trust things. Oh. Heather, did you need to add anything to that? Um, no, thank you. It must have been hard for you guys to not be able to see your child during lockdown. Yeah, um, some of us did, some of us didn't. The government did stop one parent from seeing her child completely and PPP wrote a letter to the minister at the time, which I can't remember who it was, but they didn't seem to like our letter because as soon as they received our letter, she was allowed to see the child again on Zoom. So... Um, they were trying to say that the child wouldn't understand because the child was one and or a baby, and it's like, well, the parent still has a right to see that child. Oh. So, yes, they did try and blame the COVID situation and try and say, oh, that's why you can't see it. But we got on to that and we said, why? And then... I think they don't, I don't think they had the answer, so they fixed the problem. The problem was too scared to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. And that was Susan Arthur and Heather Smith speaking about Positive Powerful Parents, a support group set up by parents with intellectual disabilities to keep their children and a big thanks to the Raising Our Voices team for sharing that audio with us. And thank you to all our guests and contributors this morning. And thank you listeners for joining us once again on Wednesday Breakfast. It's always lovely to have you with us and look forward to uh, being with you again next week. But in the meantime, we've got Stick Together for you. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. Perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Imagine what it would be like to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown. When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street. Tune in to Homeless in Hotels. A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels. And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19. Premiering on Thursday, July 28th, 12pm to 1pm. On 3CR, 855 AM. Homeless in Hotels, a 3CR supporter. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop 
Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.